Thanks for coming. We're very excited today to have you in person. And I just want to make a few announcements before we let Bethany um, start her presentation. So next week, um, it, we're going to have Kira O'Donnell, and she'll be talking about understanding the dynamics of post-hurricane shoreline protection decisions. Um, and this will be virtual, so stay in your offices, log on to Zoom, virtual. Okay, Darren, next slide. And then next Monday, a very special two opportunities to see Sean B. Carroll, <laughs> because incidentally on Friday, Sean M. Carroll, the physicist, will also be here same week, so, but the biology Sean um, will be here on Monday, and he is going to give a presentation um, at the GGA seminar, which is at 1.30 to 2.30 in Thomas Hall, and then at night, which would be the really good one that you guys should like try to attend, 6.30 to 7.30, Duke Energy Hall at Hunt Library, all are welcome. It's going to be really good. He's going to talk about his new book, Brave Genius. Thank you. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to Dr. Brookshire. Um, it's my honor to introduce Bethany Brookshire. She is a science journalist and the author of the book, Tests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. Um, and as she describes it, this book is about us. It's about what calling an animal a pest says about people, how we live, and what we want. It's a story about human nature and how we categorize the animals in our midst. Uh, so I can imagine this book appealing to quite a few of us in this room. Uh, she's also a host and producer on the podcast Science for the People. She clearly works to make science writing available to a broad audience, as evidenced by her previous work as a staff writer with Science News for Students which is a digital magazine covering the latest in scientific research for kids. She's also a former staff writer with Science News Magazine, and her writing has appeared in Scientific American, Science News Magazine, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Slate, uh, and many more. She has a PhD in Physiology and Pharmacology from the Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and in 2019-2020, she was a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT. So she has successfully navigated the path from scientist to science journalist. And my favorite line from her abstract for this talk is, the world of science writing is, in its way, just as much of a specialty as genomics. And Berkshire is here to pull back the curtain on it all. So with all of that, please join me in welcoming Bethany Berkshire. Thank you so much, y'all, for having me. It's so nice to be back in uh, North Carolina. Uh, I feel you should know that when I got here, uh, there was one of the ashtrays outside of RDU was on fire, and I felt like this was very emblematic. <laughs> um, so, this talk, um, I am going to talk to you guys about science communication, the different types, because there are many different types, um, some different tips and tricks and things that I have learned along the way. Um, I have some guidance in here specifically for people who might be considering doing some SciComm on their own, whether that be, um, you know, you are a graduate student who's questioning your life choices, which I get, um, or if you are someone who is like, I have never understood why people get things wrong all the time in the paper of record, this is for you. <laughs> um, so I will try to keep this pretty short so that we have time for discussion and questions and haranguing, etc. Um, so, this is me. Um, I am a recovering scientist, yes. 
Uh, my degree is from Wake Forest. I was a physiology and pharmacology PhD, which meant that mostly I studied stimulants, cocaine, Ritalin, etc. It was pretty all right, you know. Um, during that time, however, I began to question my life choices. Um, you know that period right after you uh, pass your falls, right, um, and you go into the actual PhD section where all of a sudden all the stuff that was working before no longer works? <laughs> and you begin to just really wonder why you're here. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> and I went to, I snuck into an alternative careers seminar. <laughs> um, and I met an editor at Scientific American. And I was like, hey, can I write for Scientific American? And he didn't laugh in my face. Um, so his name's John Runny, nice guy. Uh, he, he told me instead that I should just start writing online instead. And I did. Um, and uh, over time, I wrote while I got my PhD. I wrote at night while I was doing my postdoc, which was possibly why I could not get a tenure track job. Um, and then I ended up getting a job at Science News Magazine and Science News for Students, which is now Science News Explores because branding. Um, and I worked there for a long time. In 2019, I went to the Night Science Journalism program at MIT uh, to kind of change up my skills and get new specialization, in my case, in human-wildlife conflict. Um, and then I wrote a book, Please Buy 10 Copies. Um, and now I am a freelance writer. Uh, so I get to actually like pitch stories that I want to write around and see if anybody wants to buy them from me. And I'm glad to explain more about that and that process as we go on. Um, so I wanted to kind of talk about science communication, because science communication and science journalism are partially overlapping Venn diagrams that are not always the same. And I think people often get them mixed up, um, which is completely reasonable. When you are not inside it, you have zero idea what's going on. And then once you're inside it, you realize not only is it like this in terms of what is officially allowed and what is officially happening, there are also cliques and drama. We're not going to talk about that, except maybe over lunch. <laughs> Ask me about drama over lunch. Um, anyway, <laughs> so on the science journalism side, this is the stuff you'll hear, for example, out of NPR. Those are science journalists who work at NPR. Magazine features, um, science news writing at like New York Times, Scientific American, etc. Um, investigative pieces sometimes. Um, on communication side, that can be much more broad. You often get things like citizen science, um, informational writing, university communications. If any of you have interacted with your press office, that's science communication. Uh, they're very good at their jobs. And um, when you are being interviewed by a journalist, that is science communication, and we thank you for it. And I have more on that later. <laughs> um, people write op-eds. Uh, if you've ever written an article for The Conversation, for example, it's also SciComm. And then it kind of gets in between, in the middle. Some science media is journalism, some is communication. It's often really hard to tell which. <laughs> um, science books can be journalism, they can be communication. Um, podcasts, same. Documentary, museums, those can all kind of overlap. So we'll start with science communication. Um, this is Online Kine. She's on TikTok. She's a math-explaining drag queen, and I stand her. Um, I highly recommend. <laughs> she's like one of the only people who has successfully explained calculus to me. She's so good, and she's like 22. Um, anyway, so science communication takes a multitude of forms, right? You have people on TikTok. 
Um, you have Instagram, you have YouTube, you have books, you have blogs that still exist, newsletters, the new hotness, um, podcasts, etc. This can be a career. It can also be part of a job um, in any field. Uh, you can work for a university. A lot of people do science communications for groups they believe in or for groups that promote science. Um, so, for example, the um, HHMI has a big comms section. Um, museums have comms departments, stuff like that. Um, the focus is on communicating scientific findings, fostering scientific enthusiasm, and fostering support for science and the science organization involved. That is specific. Um, so I also wanted to cover a bit on the press release. This is a series of recent press releases from North Carolina State University. Um, they are very good. Uh, and I wanted to highlight it because NCSU is one of the best science communication groups I have ever seen. Um, I, I love you guys. <laughs> um, they Not only do they do traditional written press releases, they do videos, they do long articles. Um, they're constantly kind of making the science that comes out of the university interesting and giving you new ways to interact with it. It's utterly genius stuff. Um, so uh, this is what you're going to encounter when you write a paper that is deemed very important. Okay, maybe you're publishing it in science. Maybe you're publishing it in PNAS. Maybe it's about cockroach mating. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it is, journalists are interested in it, or the SciComm department thinks you're, the journalists are going to be interested in it. So the original story of the press release is that these were things that you would send to journalists or wire services back when that was a thing, um, to make the journalist want to cover the story. So the idea is to communicate the science in a way that a journalist like me, who has only two brain cells, can understand. Um, and the good news about this is that scientists often have input and oversight over this process. Um, it's backed by the university and the organization. You often get to see a press release before it goes out. You can approve your language, you can tweak your quotes, stuff like that. Um, here's some pros and cons of science communication, and we're going to get to that in journalism too, because there's both. Um, you do not need a PhD to communicate science. Many people um, communicate science beautifully with just um, college degrees, some of them not in science. One of my favorite science communicators, she doesn't even have a college degree. She is a paleontology writer, she has eight books on dinosaurs, and she has never gotten a PhD. Um, you can also try new forms. You can do new things, right? You can go on TikTok in drag and explain calculus. I love that. <laughs> um, if you do have a PhD, it can help you a lot to get over that hump and, and get some respect. Um, people kind of assume you know what you're talking about, so that can be useful. <laughs> um, but on the con side, it can be biased, right? It is not required to be accurate. There are plenty of science communicators out there who have stepped in it. If you have looked at the work of Nate Silver lately, you will know what I'm talking about. When you get outside your lane, oh, things happen. Um, things who are people who are successful can get backed by big budgets and brands, which are great, but they can also make people concerned about sources of bias. Um, for example, there's one science communicator that I know who does really great physics and astronomy communications. Um, she was recently backed by an oil company. And everybody is now looking at her side eye. And that's kind of not fair. 
she has to eat. But also, it does influence what she covers and how she covers it. Right? It matters where the money comes from. Um, and I will say, those who are successful in this field tend to look and act a certain way. Um, they tend to be young, they tend to be white, because uh, that's how that goes. There is better diversity coming in now, and it makes me really happy. Um, but it's a lot easier to get success if you are young, white, and male. Um, science journalism, please buy my book, uh, I'm going to do that throughout. Yeah, uh, takes a multitude of forms as well. This, the thing about science journalism is that to be considered a science journalist requires specialty training. And that can be in programs. There are master's degrees in science journalism that you can get. Um, or you can get training on the job, which is what I did. Which is basically, you get a job at a magazine and then they beat you with sticks until you actually effectively write the news. Um, and the focus on science journalism is not communicating new scientific findings. It's not what it is. It is communicating scientific truth, as it is currently known. It's not the same thing. Like, often we think it is the same thing, but it really isn't. Um, so, and that has come out a lot, I find, with COVID coverage, right? Communicating truth is not the same as communicating findings. And this also means that, for example, when you communicate truth, that often means you communicate things that are bad. Things that people do not want to get out, right? Sometimes that happens. Um, so going into the journalism types, uh, this is straight news reporting. This over here is the inverted pyramid of news. Once you have seen it, you will never be able to unsee it. You will see it in every single short piece of news you ever, you ever consume again. I promise. Sometimes it is so obvious. Um, it's great. I love it. Um, so this is the inverted pyramid. Um, the top is what we call the nut graph, in which graph is spelled with an F for reasons. Um, and this answers the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Okay. Usually this is within the first hundred words of a news piece. And this does not matter if it's in the New York Times, if it's on NPR, Washington Post, does not matter. It will be in the first hundred words. Then you get into context. Why did they do this study? What happened? You know, how did they do this study? Then at the end, you get into other information. This is where, for example, you'll see outside comment, which I'm going to be talking about more. Um, and this is also where you'll see details of what are the scientists doing next? What could the scientists have done better? Things like that. Uh, the reason for this, this is actually a historical thing that has a reason. Um, is because in the era of wired news, in which they would wire literal news across countries on wires. I'm not sure about the physics of how that works. Anyway, um, but basically, the journalist would write between 100 and 500 words. They would send it to local news outlets around the country who were going to print newspapers. Those newspapers worked in column inches. And if you only had, like, two column inches, they would just start cutting from the bottom. Literally. Sometimes they still do. I have worked with editors who have just started slashing from the bottom of my article, and I'm just like, excuse me? Um, so that is why, and that is why the inverted pyramid came to be, so that even if you were limited to one inch of space, you got that in. The one thing you needed to know. It's the tweet version. Um, so the places that you will see this are your traditional news outlets. Science News, New York Times, Ars Technica, 
Ars Technica is a master of this art form, actually. Um, Scientific American, Wired, anything that you read under about 500 words is probably going to have this structure. Um, it's just there to tell you the news. And this inverted pyramid doesn't just go for science, it goes for literally every other thing. Politics, <laughs> uh, sports, <laughs> yeah, it exists everywhere. Um, then there's news and opinion. And this is where someone who is informed is telling you what to think about the news. Uh, this can contain reporting, it can contain data, but it also contains the point of view of the author, which is important. Uh, the places you will see this, the most famous of these is the Atlantic. Um, I remember one time uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, science writer Ed Young uh, was giving a talk and when asked about the Atlantic, he said, the Atlantic does not tell you the news. The Atlantic tells you what to think about the news. Which I was like, <laughs> so true. Um, Op-ed sections, the New Yorker, newsletters. Yeah, even when newsletters tell you that they're just news, they are never just news. They are absolutely opinion. Um, anything that you follow anyone on Twitter <laughs> or Mastodon or Spoutable, where are we? Are we on Twitter? Are we on Mastodon? Still Twitter. Twitter, yeah. We'll never leave. It's awful. We're just going to go down with that trash fire. Um, but yes, you will see this all over op-ed sections, you will see this in specific publications. And it's worth keeping in mind that what you are looking at contains the view of the author, even though often it's a view you agree with. So what makes something science journalism, straight science journalism? The thing that does is bias, which is that we try not to have it. Okay, I go into every story believe, ready to believe what the person is saying and also ready to believe that they are lying. Every single time. I am ready to believe that this is important, and I'm also ready to believe it means nothing at all. So I have to go into every single scientific paper, no matter how exciting I think it is, which is hard, because I get very excited, but like just ready to not find out what I needed. Um, the phrase we use is trust but verify. Uh, the other phrase we use is if your mother says she loves you, get a second opinion. <laughs> um, so. This is good in that it helps to avoid conflicts of interest, right? I'm going to look for that sort of thing. Uh, one of the things that I will ask, should I ever interview you about your scientific work, is where your funding comes from. Because I want to know if it comes from a company, if it comes from the National Institutes of Health, if it comes from the USDA. Um, that will influence what your findings are. It will influence how you do the studies you do, right? Why you ask the scientific questions that you do. Um, the whole idea of writing science journalism as straight news means that my opinion doesn't matter. Ideally, you will never find out what I think when you are reading my straight news science journalism, because it's not about what I think. Um, sometimes this is great. It's really great when you want just the facts. Sometimes it's bad, uh, because journalists firmly believe that there are two sides to every story, if they are not in science. <laughs> And they do not realize that there are not two sides to every story. <laughs> Sometimes there are, but climate change does not have two sides, right? Evolution, not two sides. There are, and so it's really important when people become science journalists that they understand which things have two sides and which don't. I really actually appreciate um, Scientific American um, and their work on this. They've recently had a new editor in chief who has basically said, look, we're going to state up front, like, 
here are the things that are not two sides. <laughs> here are the things on which there is no debate. Climate change is happening and it's caused by humans. And I'm like, thank you. Because, I mean, that's been really difficult for a lot of journalists to deal with. Um, even now, I have had many discussions with editors saying, well, we need to acknowledge that there is debate. But just because there is debate on something doesn't mean that the other side is actually telling the truth. And that is where things can get lost, is when people believe that everything is a horse race, even when it's not. Um, and now we get to outside comments. <laughs> Have any of you ever been called and asked for outside comment on a paper? Great. Have you said yes? Thank you. <laughs> we love that. <laughs> um, so basically, this is something that the first time a lot of people get called for outside comment, they might be really confused. I have emailed people for outside comment and have them email back with, uh, I'm not on that paper. And I'm like, I, I know. <laughs> That's the point. Um, so basically, part of keeping up a lack of bias is me going to someone who is not on the paper and saying, hey, does this paper suck? Or is it awesome? Or is it in between? I want to know all of these things. Um, I think of it like peer review, except fewer people cry, usually. Um, <laughs> usually people are not reviewer number two. I've had a couple reviewer number twos <laughs> as outside commenters. Then I usually call someone else because I'm like, is there drama here that you're not telling me about? <laughs> Um, but yes, what I'm asking for is I'm asking for someone to look at the paper, say, yeah, this paper is really interesting. Here's what it adds to the literature. Here's what they could have done better. Um, here's what I like about it. Um, here is what I think they should do next. Those are the questions I'm looking to answer. And it's really great to get that from another scientist. I have scientific training. I can often answer this question myself. <laughs> but again, this is science journalism and nobody cares what I think, right? Um, so it's very important to have somebody outside kind of do the peer review and to show your audience when you're writing science journalism that you have done the due diligence of kind of going through your own peer review. Um, so the pros and cons of science journalism. You can make headway on really important issues. Um, there are examples of people who have written really important articles on groundwater rise um, and have changed a lot of things like building codes, right, because of these articles. Investigative pieces on um, generic drugs have actually sparked changes in how they are manufactured and distributed. This can be really, really important. Um, it can spread a lot of public awareness, just as science communication can, right? Uh, nobody knew about spotted lanternflies until people started freaking out about spotted lanternflies. <laughs> right? So it's really good for that. Um, it can also potentially change science itself for the better. Uh, many of us work very hard to write pieces about some problems that are taking place in science, such as sexual harassment, such as problems with funding. Um, and because people shed light on those issues, it can provide pressure to make things better than they are. And of course, it can get really important issues out to audiences, and it can also foster enthusiasm for science, right? You know, it's really, some of the stuff that you guys do is so cool. I mean, a lot of it's cool. I want the world to know how cool it is. Um, on the negative side, if you are going to be a science journalist, people care who you are and they care who you know. Um, they care where you're from, 
So for example, if you have a graduate degree from MIT, people react to that very differently from than if you have a graduate uh, degree in science writing from Johns Hopkins, even though they're both perfectly good. Um, the hot one, the truly, truly hot master's degree is uh, science communication from UC Santa Cruz. Yeah, they call them slugs. Everybody loves a slug. Because um, they're mascots, the banana slug. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so people really do care who you are, where you're from, and who you know. Uh, which can be annoying. Uh, they can also, science journalism can both sides issues that really don't need it. And often, that is not on the science journalist itself. That can often come from higher up in editorial. I'm working on a piece right now that I cannot talk about. But suffice it to say, they have asked me to get some, some <coughs> other points of view that I do not feel <laughs> are great. <coughs> We're going to have a talk about that. <laughs> um, but yes, a lot of times you will get editorial pressure from the publication to try to both sides an issue that does not have two sides. Um, the people who are most successful are from specific places. They are from specific institutions. Um, they often know specific people. And finally, we don't write whatever we want. So I can pitch articles that I think are amazing around and around and around. Nobody wants my piece on African swine fever. I have been trying. I am obsessed. Nobody wants it. I want to write about feral hogs and African swine fever, and nobody wants it. Anyway, um, so a lot of times you kind of have to write what you're told to write. Basically, they'll say, uh, we don't want your piece on African swine fever, but we do want a piece on um, new models for studying coronaviruses. And you're like, well, I have rent to pay, so okay. <laughs> it can be frustrating. Um, finally, there's features and long form which is a hashtag on Twitter that I hate. Long farm. <laughs> it's like a literary tweet storm. It doesn't mean anything. Long form is anything over about 3,000 words. It's a long piece. It's fine. Um, anyway, uh, this includes feature stories. It includes books. Uh, these are for bigger messages and bigger ideas, right? Um, so you wouldn't want to necessarily try and get 3,000 words out of a single study. <laughs> Right? Nobody needs that, probably. Um, so the interesting thing about long form is that it allows you to kind of mix science journalism and science communication with other things. So you can mix it with memoir. Uh, you can mix it with essays. Uh, there's a great new book that just came out um, called as Far, uh, How Far the Light Reaches by Sabrina Embler, which is a mix of memoir and deep sea creatures. There's not a lot of science, but it's very, very good. <laughs> Um, it can be journalism. It can also be communications and explainers, and books allow you to have your opinion. That was very exciting, <laughs> also terrifying. Um, and so a lot of times people, you know, when uh, scientists become very famous, they will be able to write books that allow them to get large ideas out to the public, which is really cool. As to whether or not they make money, <laughs> again, it depends on who you are and who you know. Like, it is fascinating how who you are and who you know determines how much money you make in journalism. I know a guy who shall remain unnamed who writes for $8 a word. He writes the word beer and he can buy you one. <laughs> I love it. I'm so jealous. I want to beat him. His last book, I Have a Rumor, sold for $4 million. 
Most of us do not make that money. <laughs> I am very lucky if I see a dollar a word. Right? Journalism is traditionally charged by the word. Um, so, for example, for a 750 word piece for the New York Times, I will make $750. That is $750 for me going out and finding the experts, calling them and reporting, writing the piece, doing the editing. <laughs> it doesn't work out to a great hourly rate, <laughs> which is a problem. Books can be even worse. So, the average science journalist will often make, um, the way books work is you get a book advance, right? And in theory, you write the book on the advance, then you promote it, you try to earn out your advance, and then you make money in royalties, right? The more you sell the book for, the more you have to make to actually earn out your advance. Um, many, it depends on the publication, it depends on who is writing it, but if you are a scientist, writing for Yale University Press, Harvard University Press, Princeton University Press. Sometimes you will do it for nothing. Sometimes you will do it for $5,000. Sometimes you will do it for $10,000. <laughs> um, if you are a professional science writer, uh, it tends to be between about $30,000 and $4 million. <laughs> Very few people get the $4 million. <laughs> Most of us are down at the other end. Um, so they are, in many ways, labors of love because you can't, you can't live on that while you're writing these books. This book took me, I had 18 months to report and write it, and then I edited it for another year. So you, you really can't. Um, so as careers, here we are, I made a nice little grid um, between communication and journalism. There, journalism has formal routes of entry, communication doesn't. Uh, both can be their own career. Stability is lacking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, Self-determination, however, you have throughout, which is awesome. I actually, in between my postdoc and going into journalism, I floundered around a little bit, including a very short stint working for um, the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology for the Democrats. I lasted six weeks. <laughs> I do not take authority well. I do very well as a journalist. I have no respect for authority. I don't care how many House committees you're on. <laughs> it's a real problem. Um, you have more freedom of format and style in communication than you do in journalism. Grad school can help, as in science grad school, in both cases. It can give you gravitas. Um, one of the things I've found in journalism is that because I have a PhD, I can identify whether a scientific paper is good much faster than most of my colleagues. I can tell within... I mean, I read the abstract. <laughs> it's really not um, I also am much quicker at finding outside commenters because I know what to look for. Um, I tend to be better at describing things like methods because often I have done them, which helps. Um, so a PhD in science can really help in that matter. Um, now we have some tips and tricks for actually doing science communication. And this is whether you are working on a press release, if you are trying science communication on TikTok, if you are trying science journalism, all of these things apply. The first one is never underestimate intelligence, always underestimate vocabulary. Okay? The average person reads science at a fifth grade reading level. The average person with no science education. That's not bad. Those people are not stupid, right? They just have degrees in business and stuff. Like, what do you know about business? I don't know anything about business. <laughs> right? 
Um, so they just they just don't know the words. Um, the average person reading the science science news does not know what a neuron is. You have to explain. They don't necessarily know what DNA is or how it works. You have to explain. Um, so always define your terms, even if it's a term you have used 50 million times. <laughs> always define it. Um, these were from my first editor gave me these three words and I loved them so much I put them in a big sign right above my computer. I'm lucky they're not tattooed backwards on my forehead. <laughs> write tight, bright. Write it correctly and accurately. Write it short and don't make anybody cry. <laughs> um, the thing is, news is often depressing. We know. Um, so keeping it bright is not necessarily trying to be like, vibes, positive vibes, good vibes only. No. But try not to be hopeless, even when the situation is really bad. You know, try to keep it bright. Um, number three, always put the point at the top. First 100 words. What is the point? We need to know. Uh, number four, seek out feedback. Be humble. Because let me tell you, if you ever become a science journalist, you will become so humble so fast. <laughs> I still keep some of the edits that my first editor used to send me. There was one that she just circled in red and wrote on the side, why, why, why? <laughs> no, never. Why are you bad at this? <laughs> I love her. <laughs> We're still very close. Um, so it doesn't have to be mean feedback, <laughs> but always seek out feedback um, from other writers, from other scientists, from other editors. It's very easy to kind of get lost in your own head and your own ideas of what you're doing and things can get real, real jumbled. Um, finally, read a lot and read critically. Uh, if I ever meet someone who is trying to get involved in science journalism or science communication and they do not read science, it's not gonna go well for you. <laughs> Sorry. Like, you need to not just read for enjoyment. I hope you read some of us for enjoyment because some of us are very funny. Um, but read for structure. So for example, when I read science news, I'm looking for the inverted pyramid. When I'm reading features, there's actually narrative forms that we use and I look for them. I'll be like, oh, oh who's using a zipper? Mm, I see you there. Oh, look at this, the whale. We have... We have stupid names for narrative forms. Um, we also get real insufferable when we talk about But I look for those forms. I see where they're putting different voices, why they're putting them there, when they introduce certain concepts, kind of tells you where the person is going. Um, every single piece of science journalism that I read that's very good, you can see the map if you read close enough. You can see how they outlined it, you can see how they put it together. And that will help you communicate more clearly as well. Um, also read critically. I mean, you guys peer review. I peer review. And I'm mean, I am reviewer number two. <laughs> I'm just on science journalism, I'm like, mm, you shouldn't have called that person for your outside comment. I don't know what you were thinking. So I absolutely read critically. Did they have an outside comment? What did that outside commenter say? Did they mention the funding? If it was not just straight NIH funding? Uh, what are they missing in terms of like glaring things they missed from the paper? Are there questions they did not answer, right? These things, I mean, they make you have a lot less fun when you read, 
but they also teach you a lot about how to write. Um, finally, here is an example of keeping things in your first 100 words, um, answering the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Okay. Uh, honestly, I would love this if everybody did this in the abstracts of their papers. That would be amazing. <laughs> Um, but I would like to, this is mostly to highlight the best sentence that I've ever written, um, <laughs> which is the sentence, it was December of 2007, and Mike Cove had an eight-foot Burmese python in his pants. Thank you. Um, so, I have a bunch of answers here, and the second sentence actually answers the rest of these. Who? Mike Cove. He's a mammalogy curator at North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. What? Python in pants. When? December of 2007. Where, this will come up in the next uh, <laughs> sentence, the Everglades. <laughs> Why they are an invasive species. How, long story. <laughs> I do end up answering all of those questions, and I do it in about 300 words. But I'm getting the first few questions out of the way in that sentence. And you'd be amazed how often you can do this. It's really hard to do at first, but after a while, you just start chunking the who, what, when, where, why, and how in automatically. Um, I assume most of you will probably be dealing with me, journalists like me, as opposed to becoming journalists yourself. Um, so here is where I start with my tips for you. <laughs> tips for dealing with journalists. I am Googling you, I promise. You should Google me. The number of times I have called a journalist, I have emailed them, I have set up a phone, we've gotten on the phone or gotten on Zoom or whatever, and they're like, okay, so, so who do you write for? I could be calling from the Daily Mail. You don't know. I could be writing from the sun. <laughs> you should have looked, <laughs> right? Know who I am, know what I do. Uh, the number of people who write really terrible science news and get really good scientists. <laughs> no. <laughs> so Google me, find out if I'm someone you wanna to talk to. Keep in mind that not all publicity is good publicity. Um, if you talk with the wrong journalist, they can indeed make you look very stupid, and that is a problem. Um, and you can say no. We have no problem with people saying no. Please do reply to the email, but you can say no. If you have no time, that's fine. I really, really love it when people suggest someone else, though. Like, oh, sorry, I don't have time to talk to you, but my postdoc does. I love that. Um, or, you know, my grad student does, someone else in the department does, something like that. I really love that. I especially love talking with uh, grad students and postdocs because I was one um, and because I used to write for children. I'm very good at walking people through their first time dealing with a journalist <laughs> and I love doing it. So yes, send me your postdocs. Um, when you do talk to me, make me care. I mean, you do this for a living. You think this is fascinating. You need to tell me why. Sometimes that's a like really good analogy. Sometimes it's a personal story. Um, sometimes it's just, yeah, what I study is actually really funny and I'm gonna tell you why. <laughs> I love that. Um, use simple words and concepts. Remember that the average person does not know what a neuron is. Uh, in case, are there a lot of entomologists here today, I believe? Yes? People don't bugs? Yeah, most people don't know what an insect is and a bug versus a true bug. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. Um, so, yeah, analogies are also very, very useful. Some do's and do nots. Do 
ask about the publication. Feel free to ask me for what my story is about and my angle. I may not always tell you, but often I do tell you. Um, ask how the journalist works and what the procedures are going to be. Right? A lot of journalists just get really used to like calling, I think I'm kind of entitled, honestly. They'll just like call people and expect them to, I don't know, answer all their questions. You are under no obligation to answer all of my questions. You are welcome to ask me how this is going to work. I'm always glad to explain. And uh, definitely look up the journalist ahead of time. Or you can ask. I actually have a standard uh, link and stuff that I send out when people say, hey, who are you? Can you show me some of your previous work on this topic? I will absolutely. I have links that I can send every single time. Things that you should not do. You will not ask to see quotes before publication. Please do not do this. We cannot do it. It is often strictly against the editorial policies of the magazines that we work for. And even if it wasn't, I wouldn't do it. Uh, do not ask to see the copy or edit the copy before publication, even if it contains a typo, as mine does. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that is also against our editorial policies. And a lot of scientists really object to this. They get real upset with me. Um, I can't do that. Think of it this way. How would you feel if you knew that politicians were allowed to see the copy before a paper published on them? Why do you think you're better? Because you're not. I mean, maybe you are. Probably you are. Politicians <laughs> kind of suck. But <laughs> it's, it's against policy for a reason. Here's some SciComm you should do right now. Right now. As soon as you get out of here, you have your laptops open, do it now. Make me able to find you. Claim your academia.edu, academia your research gate, your Google Scholar profile. Claim those things now. Um, I don't care how many papers you have or don't have. Please do that. Please be findable. The number of scientists who I have to go through and have to find some email that they put on a paper in like 2018, but they moved two institutions since 2018 and none of those emails work anymore. I had to hunt them down on like LinkedIn, but they don't even have a LinkedIn. Be findable, please. <laughs> um, and use emails that will stay with you. Put them on your webpage, put them on your research profile, um, put them on your papers. We love a good Gmail address, because those never die. Whereas, I mean, if you're a grad student or a postdoc, you're going to lose your email, right, in like five or six years. Um, sometimes you'll lose it in a year if you're about to graduate. And so the permanency of a Gmail is a lovely, lovely thing. So that was a quick overview. Now I'm ready for questions or discussion. I only went 15 minutes over. <laughs> so, thank you so much, and please ask away. I'll ask something not science communication per se, but the context. Some you mentioned. <laughs> stories over sexual harassment and things like that. I'm wondering, from a science communication and journalism perspective, what challenges do you see in terms of reporting those kinds of things? Yeah. Um, I'm going to So sometimes that can be hard. I don't do a lot of investigative reporting. 
but I know a lot of people who do. Um, and certainly I have done some reporting um, for my book in particular. One thing that journalists do as a matter of our ethics is we protect our sources. I protect my sources. There are some people in my book who do not have their real names on purpose. In theory, what they're talking about is not controversial. In reality, it's very controversial. And I want to protect them. Uh, when covering things like sexual harassment, that means we will often allow for things like anonymity. Um, so as long as the writer knows the real name, sometimes the editor knows the real name, we never have to print it. Um, certainly, it is always up to you as to whether or not you want to talk to a journalist. And people often say no. There can be some real difficulties when you're dealing with things like, for example, research scandals. Plagiarism scandals. Uh, that one dude... I think he was a spider researcher. It turns out he fabricated like 60 papers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can be really hard. There are some times when I am calling people on what is arguably one of the worst days of their life. And you have to try to get them to talk to you. <laughs> um, and I always tell people, look, it is not my job to make you look bad. It is my job to tell the truth. If the truth makes you look bad, I mean, whose fault is that? But also, you know, it is my job to tell the truth. It is not my job to make you look good. It is not my job to make you a hero. It is not my job to make you a villain. It is merely my job to tell the truth. Sometimes that makes people talk to you. Um, the other thing that I've come across doing is uh, trauma-informed reporting, um, which sounds very official and sounds like an official process, but honestly, what it comes down to is, are you okay? Do you need a minute? And certainly that can be the case um, when you're dealing with really traumatic things. Uh, certainly we've come across that more and more um, as we report on things like COVID. Nobody was okay. Most of us are still not okay. It's just buried somewhere. Um, so it's pretty vital as a journalist. I spend, I'm very grateful for Zoom because I can see people and seeing their faces and knowing when things are becoming not okay. And saying, okay, we're gonna back off. We're gonna talk about coffee for like five minutes while you recover yourself. Um, there's also something that we do called going off the record. This is important. Should you need to tell me something that is really, really important, but that cannot be put in print for reasons that will imperil you or your career, you can go off the record. You can say, this is off the record. Always clarify with a journalist what that means, because it means different things to different people. To me, off the record means I turn off the recorder. I turn off the recorder, whatever you say will not be printed. Then I will actually confirm when we go into another topic, are we back on the record? I will turn the recorder back on. Okay, there are other people who don't necessarily do that. Um, there's also something called on background, which is like, I have something to say that's mildly scandalous. Uh, usually what happens is it's a government scientist or a government employee who is saying something that is not remotely controversial. They just don't have official permission to say it out loud. <sighs> they have to talk on background. So basically you can print the thing, you just can't say who said it, right? So there's lots of things that we do when we cover controversial topics um, that we try to do to protect people. Um, and there's also things that we have to do to protect ourselves. Um, we do a lot of like 
preparation to make sure we do not get doxxed on the internet. Do y'all know what doxxing is? Okay, a couple people who don't. Doxxing is when they print your home address and they start sending stuff to your house. Or coming to your house. Which has happened. <laughs> or coming to your place of employment. Which has happened to me. Um, and it sucks. It is very, very scary. The first sign of it is usually receiving a pizza that you did not order. Which I realize sounds stupid. It's terrifying. <laughs> um, because they're flexing their power and saying they know where you live. Um, we try very hard to protect our sources from that sort of thing as much as we try to protect ourselves. And there are lots of things that we do to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I um, enjoyed your presentation. Um, you say you know that your job is to uncover the truth, but often the truth in science is an interpretation based on a lot of uncertainty, especially for these controversial subjects. So how do you deal with that without getting to both sides-ish or what have you? Yeah, I mean, we, we say we deal with the truth as it is currently known at the time, <laughs> right? Because it changes. That's the great thing about science, is that we can update things as we find out they sucked. It's wonderful. Um, we mostly deal with this by trying to be very, very careful about what was found and what people think it means. Um, so when we are looking at interpretations, often we will rely on the outside commenter to provide that context, right? So it's a scientist saying that they would interpret it this way. Or it's the author saying they would interpret it this way. Um, the other ways you will see what we call weasel words. May, could, might, could probably, might, could ought. <laughs> um, yeah, we use a lot of those. Um, and, of course, we're totally willing to update. Right? I love it when new stuff happens. I love it when we, when we can change our minds. I think that's amazing. Um, and we also try to make it clear, I try to make it clear in my writing, this is what we have right now. But it could be more things. Things could happen in the future. So I'll often try to include, like, okay, what are people doing in the future to investigate this issue further? Right? And that, that usually helps to kind of provide context that this is temporary. Whether people read it that way, you know, you can never account for the reader. You mentioned earlier that a lot of the decisions on what story is featured is maybe coming from above. Um, how do they make a decision on what's important to include, what should be included? Oh, that's such a good question. Sometimes I wish I knew. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the thing about, and I say this to science journalists the other way, when they're all like going gaga over some famous science they're talk, scientists they're talking to, I say scientists are people and people are biased. Science journalists are people and people are biased. I have this one editor, she will cover anything that says that vaping is bad. If it says vaping is bad, she is on it. <laughs> Within a hot second, she is obsessed, <laughs> right? I'm like, sometimes it's not even news. Oh my God, calm down. <laughs> um, so it really does depend on what the magazine is really interested in, um, on what they already have on the docket, for example. Um, if a bunch of people are already publishing like cool animal-related stories, they may want space instead. So they may look for a space story. Um, robotics, stuff like that. Uh, so it really does depend on kind of who is in charge, 
what they're interested in. Um, and that varies from publication to publication, right? So Scientific American um, tends to be a little more like in the weeds. They like kind of cool uh, science in process kind of stuff. Um, they like stuff that maybe other science magazines have not covered. Um, so they're kind of fun. Um, science News Magazine is just, just the facts, ma'am. Just get it done. Um, you know, if it's come out and it's in like an important journal, that's what they want. Uh, New York Times uh, wants it if it's come out in a big journal, that's what they want. Bonus points if it's funny. The editor at the New York Times loves himself a pun. <laughs> so if you can make a pun or a song lyric out of it, he's sold. Um, Smithsonian tends to be much more natural history, sometimes environmental. Um, Sierra, heavily environmental. And they want literally nothing outside of America. <laughs> like nothing outside of North America specifically. Um, so it depends on who you write for. And as a freelancer, the good news is I can be like, oh, I want to write a really cool story about gulls. Hawkeye is a Canadian magazine that specializes in coastal ecosystems. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, if I want to write about African swine fever and the worries of it coming into the United States, that pitch is going to Sierra. Right. So it kind of depends on which editors. And as a journalist, one of your jobs is kind of to get to know which editors want what. But it's also important to realize when you're reading an article of science journalism, what you're reading is not just that journalist's work. It's the journalist's work. It's the journalist's choices. It's the editor's choices. It's the editor's work. It's the publication's view. I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole layer, layer of things. Yeah, spinning off of that, that was one of the things I was kind of surprised you didn't really talk about, like, you talked about sort of like general audiences, but to what extent, like when you're writing for different publications, different venues, are you thinking about very specific audiences, types of people who, who will be likely to be reading your work? Because that can differ dramatically from your venue, I would, I would suspect. Yes, yes, that's a really good question. Um, so that's actually something, I have a list of questions. I'm a really organized person. And I have a list of questions that I send to every editor at a new publication when I haven't written to them before. And one of the first questions I ask is, who is your audience? If they don't know the answer to that question, <laughs> they always know. Um, so it kind of depends. Uh, when I write for the New York Times, I am thinking very much about a general audience. Uh, a general audience, most likely they have a college degree, most likely they are middle class or higher, uh, most likely they consider themselves politically informed. You know, it gives you some ideas. Uh, Washington Post, I usually think, oh, I'm dealing with somebody like a little, um, a little more localized. Washington Post people have real big noses for politics, uh, but they're also, they tend to be Washington focused. Uh, so it really just depends on the article. If you're writing for Ars Technica, you're basically writing for scientists. Like, <laughs> Ars Technica is heavy scientists. Uh, Wired, you're writing for nerds. Like, the more Star Trek references you can throw in there, the better. Uh, so yeah, no, audience is absolutely something I think heavily about. Uh, I don't think about it as heavily as I think people do who are pure science communicators. They spend a lot more time thinking about audience, uh, but I absolutely do. A lot of what you talk about is basic science, but for someone who does social science or applied sciences, what tips do you have for like engaging in the science communication space with science journalists 
when you're not making groundbreaking discoveries, but you're doing something that you think is pretty cool. I love social scientists, so you should talk to me. <laughs> I am obsessed. <laughs> I love seeing how science is received in the world and how we change how science is received and absorbed in the world. Like, science and technology studies is my happy place. I am here for you. Um, there are several places that actually have social science reporters. Uh, so Science News, for example, uh, Sujata Gupta is their social sciences reporter. She's delightful, personal friend. Um, so some people have those. Uh, I would say the big thing is making it relevant to what's going on right now, right? In a way, I think your job is almost easier <laughs> because what you do is so relevant to people's everyday lives, right? Like that's kind of where you do. Yeah, so one of the things that struck me, and I appreciate that you did this in your talk, in many of the comms side, you emphasize that being from a certain demographic and a certain institution is really important for success in this field. I'm also wondering how it reflects in terms of how stories get told, especially in terms of, and, and what recommendations you have in terms of diversifying sources and getting stories from places that don't get the attention. Yeah. Okay. So, um, there has there was a movement back in mm, 2014 or so to start tracking the diversity of people's sources, right? So the real problem is science journalism is real white. It's real white. Um, it is, believe it or not, very female. Like about 70 percent. Weirdly. Uh, once you get up into the higher levels, the people who are really famous, it's highly male-dominated, which tells you everything. But at the very low levels, your average science journalism reporter is probably a woman in her 30s. Hello. <laughs> um, so that is one thing. Um, there was a big push to kind of track the diversity of your sources and to make an effort to diversify your sources. I do track the diversity of my sources. Um, I still do. I've been doing it for years. I have a giant Excel spreadsheet. Um, and in fact, I do that for every source. This is not just because it's good to track diversity and have more diverse sources. It is also because I have a memory like Swiss cheese and having someone's name and their email in an Excel spreadsheet helps me a lot. <laughs> um, it's basically a Rolodex. It's wonderful and I love it. Um, so a lot of people have been working on that. However, I also see a lot of resistance within science journalism. You'll get some people, they're often old white guys, who say things like, well, I'm just only going to talk to the best source. And I'm like, well, yes. What if the best source is a person of color? Maybe you should call them. Like, why not do that? Um, I think it's very, very important to do, because I think it's important to show that many, many people can do science. Right? You know, it's really upsetting when you ask a five-year-old what a scientist looks like and they draw Einstein. Like, <laughs> none of us do that anymore. Most of us do our hair. Like, <laughs> um, so that's very important. With regard to diversity within science journalism itself, there have been some really important moves to kind of increase diversity. Um, there are diversity-related grants and diversity fellowships and things like that, which is awesome. The place where this gets difficult and this is so frustrating to me, um, is the issue of who is allowed to cover what. Because the number of times that 
person of color is told not to cover something about racism because they are biased on the topic. Or a woman is told not to write about reproductive science because she's a woman, and therefore biased. Because we know that men do not reproduce, they produce only by binary fission. <laughs> it is ridiculous. It makes me very angry. Um, I think, and that's a problem that comes from the inside and from editorial choices. And what we need is for more editors to realize that working to show a lack of bias is a thing that you do in your work. It is not who you are as a person. Because that attitude assumes that the unbiased position is a white man. And that is silly. Because everybody is biased about something. Right? Like, we exist. <laughs> um, so, yeah. We can talk more about that later. <laughs> it gets very spicy very quick. Okay, so I think this is a good stopping spot because it's one o'clock and if people need to leave and go to their next um, event, you are welcome to do that. If that helps you think, Bethany.